at the end of this service, uh, we will take a benevolence offering that is for special needs in this church or community. So as you depart today, there'll be ushers at the door if you'd like to give to that benevolence offering. Thank you. Okay, so we're uh, in a series called Home Improvement, and this week I get to talk about marriage, which I totally planned because Andrew and Ashlyn are here, you know, this morning together. So if anything gets uncomfortable with what I say, and if you feels like it's directed at your marriage, it's not. It's really just for them, okay? You can just write it off and say, nope, it was really just for them. So that, that's how it is. Um, actually, it was just coincidence, right? Um, Andrew came up to me last week and said, oh, by the way, Guess who's coming into town on, on the week you're talking about marriage? You know, it's like, oh, that's good. That's good. I'll make it even better. Okay? <laughs> I don't know. Um, a number of you said to me last week that um, I, I must know your faults because I was preaching about them or something last week or it was directed right at you. I can assure you that's not the case. Uh, it, it just comes out that way and the Spirit does what He wants. So if you feel that way this morning, if I'm talking about your marriage, it's only because that's what God does. <laughs> All right. There were two hunters out one day, and they came across a farm, and it looked to be abandoned. So they were kind of poking around, looking around there, and they saw uh, a well. And so they walked up to the well, kind of looked down, and they couldn't see to the bottom. And they thought, I wonder how deep that well is. So they uh, got, they, they were kind of looking around. They thought, well, let's throw something down the well. What, what do you see? You know, what do you see? And they found this old car transmission, okay, an old transmission. So let's pick that up and throw it down and see the big splash, you know. That's what you should do. So they pick this thing up, they haul it over, they throw it down, and before they can even wait to hear the splash, they turn and they see this goat over here. And the goat starts to charge at them, you know, and they're right by the well and the goat's coming right at them. And what are we going to do? Jump out of the way. So they jump out of the way, and the goat jumps right down into the well. Okay? So now what's going on? So they're, they're talking about this, and then the farmer comes out. Oh, it's not abandoned. Actually, the farm has an owner. The farmer comes out, and, and, and the farmer's talking to the hunters, and the hunters say, uh, we were just wanting to know, could we, could we hunt on your land today? Would that be okay? And the farmer says, oh, yeah, yeah, that'd be fine. But uh, have you guys seen my goat? And... Uh, the hunters say, oh, yeah, 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 the weirdest thing happened. He would start chasing after us and, and jump down the well, you know, and, and the farmer said, that is so weird. I could have swore I had him tied up to the transmission. <laughs> it's sinking in. It's still sinking in. I know. I know. All right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so here's the thing. Here's the thing. When you get married... Parents, explain that to your kids. It'll, it'll be all right. Just tell them what really happened there. Okay. When you get married, you bring baggage into the marriage, right? Because we're all sinful. I mean, we all have sin, and we all grew up with parents who sinned, unfortunately. Nobody has perfect parents except my mama. She is perfect. But the rest of you, that was a joke. Um, the rest of you had sinful parents. And, uh, and, and we bring baggage into the marriage, and, and that baggage is connected to us, you know? Uh, whatever you're connected to, you tend to follow, like the goat. Whatever you're connected to, you tend to follow. And, and for some of us, 
our, our marriages feel like they're sitting at the bottom of the well because we're connected to a transmission. We brought this with us. We don't really want it there, but we don't th- try to think about it, but it's there, and it's pulling us down. So I want to talk, again, we're in Jacob's life right now. I want to talk about Jacob's marriage because it's easier to talk about all of his problems than it is to talk about our problems, even though our problems reflect some of his problems. Are you with me? So go to Genesis chapter 29. Go to Genesis chapter 29. Isn't it great that you have a biblical hero like Jacob that you can look at and say, boy, I'm glad I'm not living his life. You know, he knew the Lord, and that's good. But man, I'm glad I'm not going through what he's going through. Genesis chapter 29, verse 15. Where we left off last week, uh, Jacob had just... uh, uh, got his brother's birthright uh, by selling a bowl of soup to the uh, Esau who was called godless and didn't even care for his birthright and traded it, and then uh, later stole uh, the blessing that his father was going to give his older brother by pretending to be Esau. Isaac was couldn't see well. Isaac's a dad. He's in bed, you know, and he can't see well, and he wants to bless his oldest son. And in that day, and I wonder about even today, but in that day, for sure, blessings tended to come true. They tended to be kind of prophetic. And so Isaac was going to bless his oldest son Esau. Jacob wanted to steal the blessing. His mother was in cahoots with him. And his mother sent him in, posing to be Esau. And he received the blessing. Now Esau's furious about this because Esau, because Jacob received this blessing. It was all, it was all about like, you know, wine and grain and animals and flocks and, and, and and the abundance of the earth that would all be Jacob's, and he would rule over his brothers, and he would, you know, Esau was furious that Jacob stole this blessing. And so Jacob goes on the run. Isaac, his dad, says, what I want you to do is I want you to go to your mother's brother, and uh, Laban, and I want you to get married. Okay, go get married. And so uh, Jacob goes to get married. He gets to his uncle Laban's, and he... Uh, meets his beautiful daughter, Rachel. His beautiful daughter, Rachel. And that's where we're picking up the story in uh, Genesis 29, verse 15. Okay, Laban, Uncle Laban, said to him, Just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is complete and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. When evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob made love to her. And Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It's not our custom here to give the younger daughter a marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilna to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. 
Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. Okay. What is going on? What is going on? You have the deceiver being the one who's deceived. Now, first of all, it talks about the two daughters, right? And it says, Rachel's lovely, she's beautiful, and, and Leah had weak eyes. Now, there's a lot of commentary on what in the world that means, okay? I mean, English commentators, rabbis, I mean, people love talking about what does it mean to have weak eyes. Because on the one hand, you're contrasting two sisters, and you're saying Rachel's beautiful, so Leah has weak eyes, which, which makes it feel like it's, it's, a, it's some sort of downer thing, you know, like she wasn't very pretty. What, what, we kind of feel like that. Some have said, well, if you take it very literally, it sounds like she had an eye problem. So maybe she, she couldn't see well. Maybe she was nearsighted and she was always squinting, you know. And that wasn't very attractive. Don't do that. Girls, if you forget your glasses on your first date, don't do that, you know. Um, some say maybe she had, you know, an eye trouble, like a lazy eye or something. I mean, there, there, there's lots of different literal suggestions but then there's the figurative ones, like saying that's a, that's a gentle way of saying she just wasn't pretty. She just wasn't pretty. Jewish tradition has it, and I'm not saying this is true. I'm only saying Jewish tradition has it that Jacob was supposed to marry Rachel and Esau was supposed to marry Leah. And there was some sort of arrangement that was supposed to happen that, that, that wasn't really happening. And, and Leah was so upset about the idea of marrying godless Esau because she was a God-fearing woman, that she was always crying. So her eyes were puffy. So the rabbis say, this is a godly woman who couldn't stand the thought of being married to a godless man. And so when uh, Laban arranged to have the switch, Leah jumped at the chance. Which doesn't seem very God-fearing, so I kind of question that interpretation, and it's based on Jewish tradition, so it's not in the Bible, it's not authoritative word of God. It seems like we're comparing physical to physical. Take that how you want to take it, but we do know, as a matter of fact, that Rachel was beautiful, and that Jacob was, in fact, in love with her. And that's what matters. Laban, being the shrewd businessman, says to Jacob, what should your wages be? And Jacob says, I'd like to marry one of your daughters. Apparently Jacob didn't come with any money in his pocket because normally you'd pay for your bride. There's a bridal price to pay. And so Jacob figures, if I work for seven years, I could afford to marry her because I don't have anything else to pay you. So Laban agrees and then makes the switch. Now, you know from last week we looked at uh, Jacob's big deception of his father, Isaac. Isaac was blind. Jacob comes in and says, I'm Esau. And Isaac's like, it doesn't sound like Esau. But then Isaac touches him and feels the hairy garment that's on him and says, well, yeah, Esau, my son's really hairy and smells like the field. This must be Esau. And, and then blessed him. Look, Jacob has baggage. And, and, and stuff that he brings to his marriage uh, is of a similar type that he's done to others. What happened to Isaac happens to him. And I want you to see, like, I'm sure the author of Genesis wants you to see these connections like like Isaac was blind and did not know Jacob was pretending to be his brother. Jacob, under the cover of darkness, 
was blind to who he was in his bed with. Isaac, who had only his sense of touch. Jacob, who only had his sense of touch that night. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see what's going on? Jacob, who is now the second time at the mercy of this whole, well, the oldest comes first. Oh, he's heard that whole thing before. That was the whole Esau. He's first out. And now Laban's going to use that against him too? Oh, we, we marry off the older first. Leah's older. In fact, some Jewish traditions say uh, Leah and Rachel were twins. Again, there's no, I don't see the biblical evidence for that, but some Jewish traditions suggest that. And so all that Jacob's been doing is coming back to haunt him in his marriage. So number one this morning. Number one, we all bring baggage to our marriage. Anger, impatience, selfishness. Man, one of the no, nobody ever sits in my office with me on their first premarital counseling thing and says, and I say, why do you want to get married? No one ever says, I want to cure myself of selfishness. But that's what marriage will do to you if you let it, as it should. It will cure you of your selfishness if you allow it to change you. But we all bring baggage, you know. The big joke is you can never say to your spouse, you act just like your mother, you know, even though she may act just like her because she grew up in the household with her. But you can't say that, so don't say it. But all that to say, we grew up in a certain environment, and unless you add Jesus for your father, you know, uh, you've got some issues that you're going to carry with you because you saw some dysfunction because you had sinful parents. And now you're going to carry it into your marriage. God wants to make you more holy, but you've got to admit that you've got this suitcase attached to you and it's full of dirty laundry. <laughs> and some people don't want to look at it. They don't want to look at it. They don't want to open it up and get it out. And so they just fight. They just have conflict. And they don't resolve it. They just keep going through the motions. And, and they just this is the way they do marriage. Would you commit to taking a look at the baggage that you have? Not the one that your spouse brought in. I mean, you've got to do that together at some point as well. But would you commit, first of all, to look at the baggage that you've brought? What are the sinful attitudes that you've brought into your marriage? What sinful actions have you been doing? And then at some point, you've got to talk about it. You've, you've got to talk about it and say, what are we doing to contribute to the conflict in our marriage. What are we doing? You've got to take a look at the baggage. Now, I know, I know the baggage can be so deep and some wounds can be so, so deep that it requires counseling. And if that is the case, if your wounds are deep, and you know the things that I'm referring to, those deep wounds, would you see a counselor for the health of your marriage and for the glory of God in your marriage. Would you do that? It could be the best decision you can make. Because while it's true that you may never be able to forget what happened in the past and how it's impacting you now, you may never be able to forget it. You may be able to achieve a certain degree of healing from it as the Lord is acting and working in your life. And as He's using people who know their stuff, people who know how to walk with you through it. 
If you find that the conflict is just of the average regular baggage type, again, it might be smart to talk to somebody. It might be smart to talk to another couple and ask them how they've walked through this. Talk to a pastor. Talk to a trusted, godly friend. But let's not just let that stuff just sit there. Because baggage tends to get heavier over time, the longer you let it go. When I was talking to youth group kids, teenagers, I'd always tell them this. If you've got some baggage now, it's only going to get worse when you get married, when you have kids, when you become an adult and you're you're working. It's only going to get heavier. Why not work through that stuff now, while you're young, and get to a place of health now? Because it's only going to get more severe the longer you walk with it. Deal with baggage. Jacob, was he a changed man after he met the Lord at Bethel last week? In some ways you could say he met with the Lord and that that left its mark on him. Oh, yes. But was he still conniving at his core? Oh, yes. And this just is replaying in his life. This stuff is just coming back at him. The baggage is all there. And the deceiver is deceived. Baggage. All right. The rest of our time, I would like to uh, look at how to unpack some of that. I suggested some counseling or talking to trusted friends, talking with your spouse, examining the issue. I want to talk about some other ways to unpack that stuff. Okay? Look at Genesis 29, verse 31. So now they're married, and as we talked about earlier, Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah. He has a favorite. I don't know whether you blame the guy or feel bad for him, because it's not like he chose this lot for himself, but he's definitely in it. Verse 31, when the Lord, that's Yahweh, when Yahweh saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, She named him Reuben, for she said, It is because Yahweh has now seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because Yahweh heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise Yahweh. So she gave him, named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her and said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? Then she said, Here's Bilna, my servant. Sleep with her too so that she can bear children for me and I too can build a family through her. Now, We'll stop there. But you can see where this is going. You can see where this is escalating because now Leah's looking and saying, oh, now, now the, the servant's bearing children for Jacob. I want to do that too. So then Leah gives her servant to Jacob and they keep having children. And the sisters are competing for Jacob's affection. Number two, the way that you unpack your bags in marriage is you pursue oneness. That's the blank. You pursue oneness. What you've got here is one man and two women. How in the world do you pursue oneness that way? And then you add two servants. 
one man, oneness, four ladies. How do you do that? How do you achieve what the Lord is looking for here? Genesis, right? It comes, it comes out of Genesis. Genesis, um, at the very beginning, says that a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. I mean, Jesus quoted that. Paul quotes it in Ephesians 5. I mean, this is the bedrock of marriage. What is marriage about? Well, it's about the man leaving his father and mother, and the, and the two become one flesh. He becomes united to his wife. So when, when you ask the question, what's the purpose of marriage? The answer that you ought to think first is, the purpose of marriage that God has in mind is oneness. That's the purpose of marriage. Oneness. It's not that I can be happier. It's not that I can find my soulmate. It's not any of those other things, as good as they might be. It's not so that I can become unselfish. We joked about that earlier. (laughs) The purpose, the bottom line purpose of marriage, biblically speaking, is oneness. Your spouse should never have to feel jealous of anything else in your life. Isn't that the lesson here? Rachel and Leah trying to be one with different women and they're jealous of each other, competing to see how many children they can bear Jacob and feel better about themselves. Leah who wants to earn Jacob's love by being a fruitful wife that bears him strong, healthy boys. Jealousy. Jealousy. And when spouses get jealous, they end up making stupid decisions. So whose fault is it? Is it spouse number one who has a, something that he loves more than his wife? Whether you're a workaholic, you know, and you just love the job and so she doesn't see you very much, or vice versa? Or is it the other spouse's fault who gets jealous and, and, and jealousy is just mean and hard to live with? Whose fault is it? And you'd say, of course, it's both. May you not love anything more than your spouse except the Lord Jesus. I mean, really. May you not value and esteem anything more highly than Jesus Christ. And may your actions not show anything to be more important than that person God has given you. Because when you do show that, they notice, they feel jealous, and then, because they get tempted, they react in a sinful way. And if you're the one who feels like you're jealous of whatever that thing is in your spouse's life, you've got to talk. You can't let that jealousy eat you up so that you make these foolish decisions that make everything worse. You can't walk down that road, the road Rachel and Leah walked. But let me say it again. No spouse should be competing for the affections of their spouse. That should not be. You should pursue oneness almost at all costs. Almost at all costs. So a good thing for you to do often is to sit down and talk with your spouse and say, what are the things that are threats to our oneness right now? Is it our schedule? Are we too busy? Is it work? Is it children as good as they are? 
Because one day the children will walk out the door and they'll go to college and they will get married and what will you have left? What will have you built up to that point? God desires oneness for you. There's an old, sto- uh, old story told about a couple, older couple in a restaurant and uh, they're eating together and, and, and the wife looks over at this couple across the way and, and she sees them and she talks to her husband and says, do you see that couple over there? Do you see the way he's stroking her hair? He's talking to her. I saw him lean up and whisper something in her ear. And now they're kind of holding hands across the table. Why don't you do that? And the husband looked over at that couple, stopped eating his Caesar salad, and he said, I don't even know that woman. (laughs) Now the men get that first. And the women are like, why doesn't he get it? Oh, yeah, I see, I see, yeah. (laughs) Men, would you take a hard look at your marriage and ask the question, what are the things that threaten our oneness? Because Satan wants to drive you apart. That is his goal for your marriage. It's to make two when God made one. I mean, anything that God's doing, you better believe Satan wants to thwart that. And if God's goal is oneness, Satan wants to separate the two. Of course, the ultimate act of separation is divorce. But, oh, the devil will settle for much less than that. He will settle for two people living two separate lives, getting into conflict, not resolving it, and just going about their life. Pursue oneness at all, almost all costs. There are many threats. All right, thirdly, let's talk about what happens next here. Uh, Genesis chapter 30, uh, if you would go there, and we'll look at verse uh, 43. So um, over time, Jacob and Laban have to figure out, you know, if Jacob lives here with Laban, what's he going to get paid? And so, so Jacob says, you know, if you give me some of your flocks, actually a small portion of your flocks, that will be good for me. So Laban goes for it. And, and then uh, Jacob, though, being kind of conniving, makes sure that his flocks are prospering more than Laban's flocks. You'll get a little image of that. Um, this, the verse I'm going to read, Jacob puts these, these sticks out in front of the sheep and, and helps them mate, the ones that would be best for him to mate. And so he's getting really rich off this. I have no idea. That, I mean, this sounds very superstitious to me as I read it, so I'll just let you see it in this way. Verse 43 of chapter 30. Actually, let's do um, uh, verse 41. Whenever the stronger females' sheep were in heat, Jacob would place the branches in the troughs in front of the animals so they would mate near the branches. But if the animals were weak, he would not place them there. So the weak animals went to Laban and the strong ones went to Jacob. In this way, the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to own large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. Jacob heard that Laban's sons were saying, Jacob's taken everything our father owned. He's gained all of his wealth from what belonged to our father. Jacob noticed that Laban's attitude toward him was not what it had been. Then Yahweh said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent word to Rachel and Leah to come out to the fields where his flocks were. He said to them, See, I see your father's attitude towards me and not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. 
You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, and yet your father's cheated me, changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. We'll stop there. So Jacob tells his wives, we're going to go. We're going to leave. God told me to go. So number two, how do you unpack the baggage that you found yourself with? Number three, then, is you set healthy boundaries. You set healthy boundaries. God told Jacob, it's time for a little bit of separation between you and Uncle Laban. This is going bad. I mean, it was bad before. It wasn't the greatest. Now it's getting really bad. You need some separation there. You know, um, I'm talking about other family members. I'm talking about people that, that have too much influence in your marriage in a negative way. Often that is in-laws. There's a story about a guy uh, driving his wife. His wife's in the front seat with him. His mother-in-law's in the back. He's driving. And the wife says, uh, you're, you're too far to the right side of the road. Get over, you know, a little bit more. And, and the mother-in-law is saying, slow down a little bit. You're scaring me. And, and, and the wife says, look, look out. There's a turn coming up. And, and all these mixed directions. And finally the man says, enough's enough. I just need to know, is my wife driving or my mother-in-law? You know, and, uh, you know, that, that, that's kind of, that's not a good place to be. It's not a good place to be when you're trying to figure out how to do life and it's my wife or my mother-in-law, you know. Um, so I'm speaking to spouses and I'm speaking to parents of spouses. You've got to have healthy boundaries. And I anticipate the day when I will be pastor dad looking at my kids married and wanting them to do things differently because I see bad things, you know. You know what I mean? You've done it your whole life. You've watched out for those kids. And, and you've seen them when they were falling off their bike. You saw them when they were driving too fast in the car and you were trying to give them direction. And now they're married and you're just like, man, they really need direction now. If ever they need direction, it's now. And yet, Genesis again says, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. That leaving thing suggests boundaries. It's time to go. It's time to go. So I'm not saying you don't speak to your kids. I'm just saying you better do that in a very careful cautious way sometimes what I have said to people is if the Lord wants to lead the family through the husband biblically speaking that's what he wants to do then it's on the husband to be talking about issues in the marriage the wife can do so just as easily but God has given the responsibility to the man to do that which is why he questioned Adam first in the garden of Eden instead of Eve she ate first but Adam got the brunt of that Adam, what'd you do? You know, why were you silent, you big dummy? You know, um, it's on us as men to do that, to be the chief servant. And so, as parents, obviously that means you want to train your children now for what they'll be like as a spouse later. And if you need to speak to somebody, maybe you speak to the to the man, you know, and you don't tell him what to do. But you just say, here's our concern. and You take it or leave it. But it's your family. You've got to lead through that. Biblically speaking, this is on you, not on us. That's a hard balance to walk. But the boundaries have to be there. Or, or, or the family starts carrying more baggage. And, and, and the husband or the wife think, really, who's running my family? 
Is it us in this marriage, or is it our parents running the show? And the parents running the show is not a biblical marriage. So boundaries. You've got to put boundaries up. And of course, I don't mean just parents, of course. I mean friendships can be that way. People can be controlling. They can be an unhealthy influence. Some people, one couple said to me once, they always went out with these certain friends and and they'd always end up in fights and conflict. And it's because they always ended up in places where they were drinking a lot and, and things were being said that shouldn't have been said. And it's like, boundaries. Boundaries. So, lastly, I am over time. Are we okay still? Everybody good? Take a deep breath? Okay. We'll head to the end here. Okay, so here's what happens next. Uh, Jacob leaves, and being the conniver that he is, again, he hasn't changed all that much. He leaves secretly. He doesn't tell Laban, I'm going. He just leaves, right? Just sneaks out of there, and Rachel, his wife, takes the household idols with her. She takes little statues with her, okay? Now, I'll deal with that next week, not this week. But, but uh, she takes the gods with her, and, and Laban finds out they left. He finds out stuff is missing. He's mad. He gets people together, and he goes after them. I mean, I'm expecting violence to happen. And then God says to Laban, you will not do anything bad to Jacob. You will not speak ill of him. You better watch yourself is what God says to Laban. So now Laban's like, okay. So Laban and Jacob meet. They talk about what had happened. Jacob says, you cheated me ten times. You changed my wages. Laban talks about his side of the story, but they make a covenant. Take a look at this with me. Here it is. Uh, Genesis 31, verse 43. Laban said to Jacob, The women are my daughters, and the children are my children, and the flocks are my flocks. All you see is mine. Well, not really, but that's how he felt. Yet what can I do today about these daughters of mine or about the children they've born? Come now, let's make a covenant, you and I. Let it serve as a witness between us. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. He said to his relatives, gather some stones. So they took stones and piled them in a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahudutha, and Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. That's why it's called Galid. It was also called Mizpah, because he said, may the Lord keep watch between you and me when we're away from each other. If you mistreat my daughters or if you take any wives besides my daughters, even though no one is with us, remember that God is a witness between you and me. Laban said to Jacob, here, it, here is this heap, here is this pillar I've set up between you and me. This heap is a witness and this pillar is a witness that I will not go past this heap to your side to harm you, that you will not go past this heap and pillar to my side to harm me. May the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob took an oath in the name of the fear of his father Isaac. He offered a sacrifice there in the hill country and invited his relatives to a meal. After they'd eaten, they'd spent the night there. Early the next morning, Laban kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then he left and returned home. Finally, you want to unpack baggage in marriage? Often it starts with a formal act of communication. Formal communication. They made a covenant. Now, when you got married, you made a covenant, for better or for worse. I'm not saying every time you have a big blowout fight, you've got to make another covenant. But there are certain acts of communication that will take you a long way towards resolving things. It's called 
the apology. Now, I end with this because this is often where we need to start. I'm sorry. But I am convinced, normally, often, we don't know how to apologize right. I'm sorry, but there are, there are ways that we undercut every word we say. Let me tell you two ways we give a bad apology. Some of us give an appeasement. Appeasement. That is, what we do is we say, I'm a terrible person. I did everything that you said I did, and I'm, I'm just horrible, and why do you love me? And I'm just, you know, I just, you know, and, and we're groveling, you know? And what is your spouse supposed to do while you're, like, on the ground? Oh, it's all right. Stand back up. It's, it, it's okay. I can't stand to see the sight of you on the ground, you know? We do that. I deserve it. You should just hate me. I'll never amount to any, you know. When you do that, you're actually being very controlling. Because what you're getting the other person to do is to say, oh, I love you anyway. It's okay. It's not that bad. You shouldn't be down like that. You see? That's not an apology. That's appeasement. Some of us give an account. Now, an account is like this. And to me, this is even more frustrating because I, I can see the manipulation just going on. Let me tell you why I got so mad at you, you see. The reason I yelled at you and called you all those nasty names is because earlier today you did this, and I didn't like it, so that, you know, so that I just didn't account. Or the reason I spent all that money without asking you is, is because I was really feeling bad at that time, you know, and I was kind of down in the dumps, and I thought I need something to bring up my spirits, so I'm going to make a big purchase. That's why I did it. You just gave an account. You didn't give an apology. When you say, I'm sorry, but let me explain, that's not an apology. Maybe half of one, but you're only halfway there. An apology is like this. I have wronged you, and you name the sin. You name it. I said those things to you. I did that. You name the sin. You talk about your deep regret. If you don't have deep regret, again, are you really sorry? I mean, that goes to the heart of it right there. You express your deep regret. And then I would add something like, and I will strive to never do that to you again. Or depending on what I've done, you might say, I will never do that again. Not happen again. That is an apology. When you see people start to give an account, you know that real sorrow is not there. When you see appeasement happening, maybe there's real sorrow, but there's an underlying control that you can see going on there. May you apologize well. If this drags up stuff in your marriage, let's end with this. Uh, Christ wants to make things better in your marriage. doesn't matter how bad it is now. If I had more time, I was thinking, if I had unlimited time this morning, I would open it up and just have some of you speak to how, what God has healed in your marriage so that the rest of us could hear it. As it stands, uh, we'll do cross-training over here at, uh, in 15 minutes, 1045, and maybe we'll share some of those stories together. But God heals marriages. He's good at it. 
And if some of you want to talk more about marriage and about getting some of that stuff in the open, I'm always willing to dive into that stuff and talk about it. I'm always willing. And, and if you're talking to me, you'll be hearing from someone who's so imperfect, not from someone that has it all together. But I'm endeavoring to honor Christ as best I can by loving the woman he's given me. Would you stand with me and let's pray together? Father, marriage is incredibly beautiful because you designed it. You said what it's for. And so I pray for marriages in this church that are on shaky ground right now. I don't have a clue who they are, but you know exactly what's happening. I pray that you would strengthen them, set them on a rock. I pray that they would find the help from your spirit and from the church that they need to have to be able to walk with you, to be able to honor you and glorify you in their marriage. I pray that we would see you move in powerful ways in places of brokenness. Would you do that, God? Would you start today to do an amazing act for some marriages in this church? For those of us that just need the refresher and kind of retuning some things, help us as well. We want to grow in our Christ-likeness, so help us, God. May we go out now and be a blessing to others. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.